Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, welcome on today's episode of Partially Excited. We got Frida Hurley. She is a powerhouse, an amazing woman and a fascinating story. She's written a book called Survive to Thrive. Hello, welcome to the show, Brida. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Aaron. Thank you very much. Frida, you were born and raised in Kerry. Tell us about your childhood and how it came all about and all that. Okay, I suppose my journey really began. I'm the eldest of eight children. Our home life wasn't the best because my mother got very ill in 1959. I was just nine years old. My siblings were all put into care and I was supposed to go into care as well. I had two brothers at that stage and four sisters. They were put into care. There was an ambulance came. I ran back down the fields when I saw the ambulance because I didn't know what was happening. All I remember was that my mother was being taken away, that she was she had tuberculosis, something like today, even though it wasn't as bad. Uh, tuberculosis uh, in 1959 was, was a taboo so- subject. Nobody kind of wanted to know about it. If you got it, your the chances of survival was very little because she was already after burying her entire family in the 40, between the 40s and the 50s. She had three brothers and her mom and dad, and every one of them had died before she got married. And she had one surviving brother, and he died on May Day 1955, and she got sick in 1959. So... That was the beginning of a kind of a very traumatic time for all of us, especially for me being the eldest, because we didn't know what was happening. We heard the word Edinburgh. You know, when you're a child and you hear the word Edinburgh, the only thing I could take out of it was, are they going to burden my mother? Because burden, Edinburgh was the name of the hospital, of course. But anyway, so from there, my mother was in hospital for around two years. And I ran down the fields the day my sister 
siblings were taken into care that time by the, uh, I think it was the, they called him the cruelty man for some reason. And there was a nurse Lenehan there as well. I ran down the fields and I didn't want to go with, into the ambulance. And I always remember it was a kind of a wet day and there was a lot of high nettles in the back, way down the back. And I hid for, as I thought forever. So what happened in the meantime, I was afraid to come up because my father would have been a very kind of a, a stern, he wasn't a very good man to be very honest about it, even though he's, you know, he's gone to his God now, but he wouldn't have been a great father. So my mother's, I suppose my mother's concern at the time was that at least if we go into, and as we call it, the, the Nazareth and the industrial home for the boys, that at least they'd be fed and that they would have a warm bed. That was her priority in life and we had very little of that growing up as children because my father rarely worked. After it seemed for ages and ages and I couldn't tell you a time or anything like that but I know that it was a long long time and I heard my nan which was my father's mother calling me Breda Breda and before that my father had called me and I wouldn't answer but when I heard my nan call me I was really mad about my, my nan we had stayed with her up at that particular time. So she said to me, nothing will happen, you, you you can stay with me. So I was delighted and I was coaxed up eventually and I came back in home and I said, I hope dad won't kill me. Uh, you know, these were the words we used as children, which my God, I, if I hear the word kill today, it means kill, you know? So anyway, I came up to my nan and obviously she couldn't look after me for all that long. And I went to a step aunt of mine. That would be my father's stepsister. She lived in town. I always remember, Aaron, she had a television, which we never had. We hadn't even got a radio. We all lived in one room in that house before the day my mother was taken away from us and uh, and the day of my siblings. I couldn't tell you whether we went the same day as my mother. As the siblings, I, could, I can't remember that. But we had no television, we had no radio, we had nothing. And my nan lived in one room and we lived in the other room and all of us were packed into the room. So when I found out that I was going to my step-aunts, they had a television there and they had the stairs in the house. I was delighted, of course, with the opportunity. I said, I'll always remember going back. It was Talcoro of a Sunday evening. Talcoro gone back a long, long time. And they were one of the first people to get a TV, as far as I know, because she was after getting some money. Her husband was killed in the railway and she bought a house in town and they bought a television. I was delighted. I moved into my Stefan's house. Eventually, what I found out there, Aaron, really was, you know, there was no, like, I had to survive myself in there because there were people there, um, my, my step-aunt, and what we didn't realize at the time that she was an alcoholic and she used to drink a lot in the room. You know, I, I couldn't understand that she wouldn't get up in the mornings and I'd have to get up for school myself and come home and sometimes the place would be in a bit of a mess and you know, sometimes there might be a meal cook for me. I'm not saying that all the time now. I never ever got a really bad vibes there as much. But there was something missing. There was something wrong. She had two sons there. She had a daughter, a daughter there. And um, I'm going to pass this fairly quickly because I was abused by one of her sons. I knew it was wrong, even though I was around maybe 10 years old at the time. And uh, so I couldn't wait to get out of the house and I remember my mother was left out for Christmas and she was left out of Edinburgh and we'll say after a year and uh, now I will say I was with my nan for six months and then I went I went to my step and so anyway I knew that it was wrong and I used to see my father 
going up every Sunday evening, he'd go to a place for a few pints, and I used to have my head nearly out the window to watch him going up to know, could he take me out of there? I wanted to go out to my nans, back out to my nans again, because that's where he stayed. Eventually came Christmas time, and my mother was left out for a few days of Christmas, and she stayed with my nan. And what did I do? I walked the three or four miles out home, and I just said to my aunt, I said, look, I'm going out to see my mum. I know she's she's coming home for Christmas. And when I went home, Aaron, I said, I, I went in the door to my mum, and I knew she was going back into hospital again. And I said to her, I said, mum, I said, I'm not going back in there anymore. And I never said the reason why. I said, look, can I stay with Nan? So I did. I stayed with my Nan. So eventually my mother came out, and then she got pregnant again with my father. There was two more siblings, three more siblings born. And two of those, are unfortunately, ended up in the, the Nazareth, we called it again, because the, where we were living was condemned that time by the, the health minister or whoever was there, because my mother had TB and obviously it was very run down. So they were put into the Nazareth again. And finally we got a house and it, life seemed to be kind of good. My father picked up a little bit again. He, he, he'd walk for a while and my father was a type of man, Aaron, that would, we'll say, if he went out and had a few pints of Guinness, he'd come home in great form. But sometimes he used to drink whiskey and you could see by the colour of his face and by gosh, you would be once one wrong word or something really, if you opened your mouth, if you put a plate into your mouth, cook it, he, he would literally hurt you. Uh, so we were always in fear of him. I stopped school then when I was 14 years of age. I worked in a travel agency. Now, bearing in mind that all the kids were in the Nazareth, and I used to go up every Sunday morning to see them, and i go across the road to the industrial school to see my brothers. My father never actually went up once to see them. Never, never. In the One of my sisters went in there at a year and a half, and she came out when she was 15. So that'll tell you that was a long time. And that will give you an idea. My father looked like he was like a man that had no emotion. Sometimes I felt sorry for him because I said his mother was my nan and she was brilliant to us, brilliant to me. But anyway, so eventually I started working to help my mom and she got pregnant again with her ninth child. It was nine, nine, sorry, we had, I was the eldest of nine. And John was born to a little boy. So uh, there was three boys and there were six girls in the family. So John never went into the industrial home. And eventually, in the meantime, I walked in, in Barney McSweeney's was called. They had a travel agency there. They had a, uh, they had a grocery shop. They also had an auctioneering company. And they also had a bar. And, you know, in that time that I was there, Aaron, I learned more there. And I was very interested in what they were doing. I loved the travel agency. I really loved the auctioneering part of it. I loved every bit of it, really. I always said when I was 14, I'll always remember it, saying, I don't want to live the life that I have lived now, even though I didn't see too much wrong with it at the time. But I said, I will make sure in my life that I will do something better you know, I, number one, I said I won't marry somebody that drinks. <laughs> number two, I was going to, my that if I ever had children, even at that age, I said, I am not, they're not going to end up in, a, in an industrial home or in, in a Nazareth or whatever, they, they in one of those places, because I had seen all of that and I wasn't happy. You can imagine going at nine years of age, your whole family being together, and all of a sudden, you're on your own. So basically from 1959 and all the way up, until, you know, I was practically 
an adult in a child's mind, I had to fend for myself. I had to be wary of who I was around. I was very aware of where I would go. I would be very wary of people, especially men and women as well. I don't know why. The only one I really loved was my mom and my nan at the time. But I walked and I, I remember uh, people would say to me, God, Brida, you'd make, make a great business person. Now, I had the personality, which I didn't know at the time. Uh, you know, you, you, when people would say to you, and when I was walking the auctions with the boss, I used to love it. On Wednesday, he'd have, he'd have auctions in forums. He'd have the hammer. And I used to love watching the people winking and putting up their fingers for 10 shillings and all that sort of thing. I really loved all of that. And I really loved the travel agency. That's where I got the bug eventually going down the line for buying property, which I made an awful lot of mistakes in later. So anyway, when I was 16, I met my husband at the time. He was in a band. He lived in town. He was he had a very good job. It's I suppose it's one of these things. I was very, I, I'd be the type of person, God, he was a lovely man. And I wasn't actually afraid of him. I suppose that was the, the, that was the beauty about it. I kind of connected straight away. And I remember meeting him in May, and I was exactly 16 years of age. And in September, there was a lady in the travel agency. She was going to Lourdes. She was called Mrs. O'Mahony. And she said to me, Breed, if you, if you have anything to write out, she said, whatever you write out, she said, I put it in near the statue. And she said, it will come through. You know, so I said, OK. So I wrote on the letter the, the, the little note for her. If you, a petition, she said, it was actually, now that I remember it. And I'll always remember the, the words I wrote, and I suppose at this stage I was about 16 and a half. I said, if it's God's will, I want to marry this man. Now, I did put, if it's God's will, you know, because I was very aware that if it wasn't for me, it wouldn't happen. But I had this infant that, it, that, that this was a person that I wanted to be with for the rest of my life. You know, um, you know be careful what you wish for. Because it actually came through. And I was delighted, of course, because he was in a band and we had a nice time. I was hardly left out by my mother. She was very strict and my father would make sure then, you know, oh God, even though I was only at home with John. And so eventually, anyway, we got engaged when I was 19 and Sean was 20. And that time you get married young. Today, they're you get married way older, 35, 36. All my siblings, all my own children are well into their 30s before they get married. But that time, it was a case of, oh, you'd be left on the shelf if you if, if you hadn't somebody by a certain age, if you weren't married and all that sort of thing. So I, we got married and um, with a beautiful wedding. He was the man of my dreams. He he treated me with respect. I think that was the that was the, that was the biggest thing I found in him. And coming from my background, which I didn't know at the time, Aaron, my husband came from a completely different background. His father worked on the railway, and his mother was a stay-at-home mom. He'd have his breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning. The dinner was at one o'clock, and the supper was at six o'clock. And there was routine which I never had as a child. And I suppose, you know, when you get married and, you know, I didn't know too much if I, if I knew today what I knew, if I knew if I knew then what I know today. But anyway, we got married and uh, I, I, I was pregnant uh, with my first child. I'll tell you, we got married the 13th of June, 1970, the day my husband was 21 and I was 20. It was a lovely day and I was so happy. It was one of the happiest days of my life. And I think, God, isn't it great to get out I can now be myself. I can. I have my own home. I or you know, we were in a, an apartment, and I had fierce plans at that stage, Aaron. Really, 
my plans were I would own my own house, I would start my own business, and I couldn't understand where they started my own business came from because I we came from a background that my father was a laborer, my grandmother, they, you know, they worked for the, the, the farmers, they were just poor country people, very poor but proud my land would have been. And, you know, my father, I suppose, was one of the, was the black sheep of the family, really, bless him. But I don't hold that against him really today because, you know, things are... Things must have been very difficult for them as well. So anyway, I, I, my first child was born in 1971, followed by number two, 1973, followed by son number three, 1975. So I had three sons by 1975. And then my first daughter was born after three sons in 1977. And then I had a son in 1979, 82 was the next one. 86 and 92. So I, I had eight children. The youngest being was a little girl. I had only one daughter. She was my fourth. And then my last child was a girl. And so I had two daughters and six sons. But what I didn't realize and what, you know, at the time, Aaron was, you know, my husband began to drink a lot more. And my husband ended up an alcoholic as well, which my father was an alcoholic. I have no doubt about that. But my father was aggressive and he was, oh, my God. And he gambled what he'd have. He'd come home with no money and then he'd get angry. I had none of that. So I thought I had the idea life, you know. But I did notice that in 1977 that my husband's drinking was getting a little bit worse. I could see the trend coming that he was, he always went to work and he would give me money, no problem. I was never short, kind of really short of money, but I'd have to give it back to him again if he was really stuck. So I was always very aware that I couldn't spend money. So the life then after that, when did I start thinking about business? I said by the time that I was 20, when I, was, I got married when I was 20, and I said by the age of 30, I said I'll have my own house and I'll have a business. I had my own house. We bought our council house and I sold that after so many years. And I built outside in Farmer's Bridge. I bought a plot of land for my uncle for £500 at the time. And we built a house out in the country because I felt with eight children, I was born in the country. And I said, well, you know, I didn't want the kids, I wanted them to have a bit of freedom. I didn't want them to be brought up in, this, in an estate because I wasn't used to it. And that's where our first home was. There was nothing wrong with it. It was a council house, a beautiful house. But I really felt that I wanted to have a life for my kids that would be different. I didn't want them to be reared in town. So we moved and uh, I started my first business. I, I had several businesses actually, Aaron. I started off with um, a little shop and that didn't work out because when I moved to my house in 1980, I saw an opportunity to open a shop there and that didn't work out because the children ate me out of house and home. I was going one night a week and every Sunday night I go out for a couple of drinks with my husband. Monday morning, they were always sick. And I was saying, what in the name of God? Why are they sick? They used, what when I put the key? And uh, and the very minute I went, they had a party. I think the, the shop lasted about two years. And then finally, I said, this is not going to work. And I closed the shop. So I said, what will I do next? I never saw myself, I suppose, I never saw myself. Um, I, I said, I, that's gone. What will I do next? So I said, do you know something? I was very good at baking. So I started making um, apple tarts and I started making scones and I started making brown bread. My tarts were so good that I was being asked for more and more on the shops. I was up all night, Aaron, and I was getting my sister to make some. And I don't need one normal cooker, uh, one oven. And I was up all night making them. That was grand until about three months after I got an ESP bill for 700 and something pound at the time. 
or euros, I can't remember. My God, I was flowed and I said, this is not going to work. I could hardly, I was spending the money as I was getting it for the children as well. You know, you, you buy the extra bits for them, whatever they need and they were going to school and all that. And so anyway, that was the end of that. So I said, Brida, that's not going to work. So I thought of another plan. So I said, do you know something? I'll do salads and that won't take any electricity. That worked out great as well. I remember I did a potato salad. I did a coleslaw, which wasn't very popular at the time, but it would be popular in the summertime. And I did loads of little bits and pieces in the line. I ate mayonnaise, uh, anything at all that I didn't have to cook with. And I remember one day, one person said, uh, one of the shops said to me, Brida, do you do ward off salad? So I said, of course I do. And I'm not joking you, Aaron. I hadn't a clue what a ward off salad was, not a mind maker. And I remember coming up to my sister, she's dead now, God rest her, she died when she was born with cancer. She lived quite near me. And she had cookie books. And I said to Joan, Jesus, Joan, I said, would you ever look up there, what's a ward of salad? And I remember, all I remember was there was celery and stuff and whatever, apples, I'm not sure. So anyway, off I went, got the ingredients, went into the shop the following morning. There was only one ward of salad sold. So that was the end of the ward of salad. But I did continue with the, the salads. But that came into September, October, when there was very little uh, demand for the salads for the winter. So that put an end to that. And I said, Jesus, what am I going to do now? That was seasonal as well. I said, that's no good to me. So I have to come up with something that will go around the clock and go around and round. So then I decided that I would, uh, there was a shop. I worked in a shop then for a little bit of a while after that. It was open uh, from 7 o'clock in the morning until 11 o'clock at night, seven days a week. And the lady that owned was going to go to America and she said to me, by any chance, Brady, she said, will you be interested in taking over the shop? I said, oh my God, a, a grocery shop, a news agency in, in town. I said, let me think about that one because I knew I'd have to have a few pounds. And she said to me, look, she said, whatever is in the shop, you can have it. She said, the stock that's there, and but she said I'm going to put a true auction here because she she obviously wanted to make sure everything was a good board. And so I went down to the auctioneer and I took over the shop. I think I borrowed the money from the credit union at the time, whatever couple of pounds it was. It wasn't very much anyway. I think about three or four hundred pounds at the time or euro. So that was grand. I had the shop and till then I noticed my husband would go in at seven o'clock in the morning and when I was bringing the kids into school. I would then go into the shop at nine o'clock when the children were dropped off. And Sean would go home then and he might get the lunch ready or whatever. But what I didn't, what got progressively worse was that Sean was drinking in the mornings in the shop when the shop from seven until nine and nine came in and I didn't spot it. He put the, the drink into his tea or his coffee, whatever he had at the time. So I didn't know that that was happening until one morning I got a phone call and somebody said to me, the shop is not open, Brida. We can see your husband at the back of the shop because you could see right into it and he was at the very back of it and he was actually sound asleep. So I went in anywhere and I said to myself, okay, what am I going to do here? So we were about a year and a half. We made good money the first year. I'll always remember it. And that was in the 80s. And then the recession started. And it was around the same time that Sean was drinking a lot. So I had to go down to the, um, the auctioneer that's uh, had it and I said look I said I won't be able to keep the lease for two years and nine months because I said I have a problem and I said look I said I can't continue because I did notice that we weren't making money the second year what happened 
what went wrong, you know. And uh, of course, I knew what went wrong. And I could see the trend that there was a lot of drinking being done. And then I was uh, coming home and I was burning myself with both ends and trying to look after the kids. So I stopped that. And that was the year that at that particular time, I couldn't pay my mortgage. The bills started coming in. I obviously owed a lot of money to local suppliers in that industry. I really hit a brick wall at that stage. And I said, what am I going to do now? You know, and I couldn't, I wouldn't answer the door. The letters came by the new time. I didn't even open them. I burned them. It comes to a stage in your life and you say to yourself, I can't, I can't do anymore now. If the phone rang then, I wouldn't answer the phone. Eventually, our phone was cut off in the house. And eventually, my electricity was cut off. And we could pay for absolutely nothing. My husband was a musician, he'd see, we would survive and he'd go and he'd play and he'd bring home a few pounds and well, we were only barely surviving. I got very sick and I said to, to myself one day, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go up to England for one week to my sister and take a break from all this madness because I knew that things were getting out of hand. My back was up against the wall and at that stage I suppose I was very near getting a, a nervous breakdown. If I'd, I probably did get a nervous breakdown. And because I was very ill, I was around the 40 at that stage. So I went up to my sister and the very, I said to my husband, I said, look, Sean, I'm going over for a week. I said, to get away from everything. I said, I just need a break. And when I went over um, to England, I saw all shop windows and loads of jobs advertising, cleaning and doing this and doing that. And I said, Jesus, this is it. Okay, you're going to come. I never went home. I, I stayed over there for the week. And I, I said to my husband, I said, do you know what I'm doing, Sean? I said, I'm going, I'm taking on all these jobs. And I said, I'm going to bring, this was September, I'll always remember it. By November, I had all the children brought over. I brought over the big, the bigger ones first. Sean stayed at home with the younger ones. And I'll always remember it was family lounge day, Tuesday. And that time we were, it was all traveling by bus. There was no such thing as airplanes because we couldn't afford them. And before that as well, which I didn't mention, now it came to my head, I was cleaning buses for a local company near us called Slattery's that were going over and back to England. We were doing all, I was doing that in the meantime as well. That was another business that I started. And again, you know, three pound a bus I was getting in and we were up in the middle of the night trying to do that. Uh, that was before I went to England and I said, do you know something, I'm going to take the break. Went over, built, got three or four jobs cleaning. I Super drug was the first job I got to were opening a shop. And of course, I had the experience in shops because I had worked in Dunes years before that as well. And I was the buyer in there for buying the fruit and veg when I was very young. So anyway, I they were delighted with me in Superdrug and they offered me a full-time job and I said, fine, I'll take it. And at that stage, I wasn't really, I, I wasn't 100% sure whether I'd go back to Ireland or not. So I said, I'll take the work. Then I spotted little cleaning jobs that I could do them in the evening. So eventually I brought the kids over. I stayed with my sister. We All, all the family stayed with my sister. I my house. She grew up with us. And she had three sons herself. And she wasn't married to a very good man either. So uh, her husband wasn't, wasn't very kind to her. He touched my dad. And uh, so anyway, she put us up until I got the deposit for a house close to her. Then I, went, I got the house, brought the kids over to the happiest day of my life. We had them all over for Christmas. We had very, very little. But I remember there was snow and the children thought it was God. They thought they were in heaven. It was really lovely. The next thing, I got a job then down in Kentish Town in a travel agency that I had worked for years before called Max Sweeney's. They had, they had an office and in, in, we were in North London. They had an office there and they offered me a job there because they found out I went to London because they were the crowd that cleaned the buses for as well. And so they offered me a job in London. I suppose it was at the stage, this stage in Ireland, I said to myself, 
oh my God, was that a mistake I made leaving the house in the morning at 8 o'clock, finishing at 6 o'clock in the evening? And at the time, computers were fairly new in and I didn't even know what, an, I, I don't, I'd only an ordinary phone. I don't, I don't think we had mobile phones at the time. So when I went in there, I realised that I wasn't great in the computer. I'm still not great in it. Uh, it's not one of, it's not one of my, my good things I can do in life. I got very stressed there and I was very nervous going in there and the daughter wouldn't be anywhere. No, she was very, very good, but she couldn't understand why I could pick up the computer. But what she didn't know and what I didn't know at the time, I was suffering from stress and I'd come home, my husband would be throwing the bed in the after feeding the kids and all this sort of thing was going on and on and on. So eventually I was coming home one evening from Kentish Town and I had my mind made up and I was there for twelve months and I said, do you know something now, Brida? I saw a little job in a clinic, a cleaning job. And I said, Jesus, I'll apply for that. I could take that job on in the evening at six o'clock and I'd be finished from half a seven, five days a week. Eventually, I got the job, of course. And eventually, they offered me three or four more clinics around the area. There was one in Barnet, there was one in Whetstone, there was one in loads of little colony, little places around near us anyway. To make a long story short, I gave in my notice. And I said, at least I can control, you know, I'll be around with the kids there. I can do this early in the morning. I can do it late at night. And um, so, and then I put a little ad in the paper, just put in an ad, cleaning houses. And one day somebody said to me, what's the name of your cleaning company? And I said, Jesus, what am I going to say here? I haven't got a cleaning company. But I call it Mitch's Cleaning Services, and I'll tell you why. We came from the Mitch's area. My husband, was a, uh, he, he had a county championship medal. He was a great footballer uh, at minor level. So I said, he came from the Mitchells, and that was a big name. And, you know, so we, we called it Mitchell's, and of course I was known as Mrs. Mitchell. That was grand. Picked up a few jobs like that, Aaron. Then I realized, I said, do you know something, Albreda? It's time now that you said, make all these phone calls. Because I had handed back the keys to my mom. And I said, if the company will come looking for my house in Ireland, I said, give them back the keys. And I hadn't even answered the phone and I had gone to England. So the first thing I did, Aaron, really was, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier. It's only because it's coming into my head as I can't go along. I wrote to the mortgage company, first of all, and I said, look, my these are my circumstances. I'm after moving to England, and you know I know that I owe four thousand, I think three or four thousand in arrears. And you know I'll understand if you take the the house from me, but I am making strides to pay back what I owe. And I said I sent off an ice letter anyway, explaining for the first time when I've told the truth that my husband was an alcoholic, and that's the problem I had. And I had the children, and but I was going to I was going to England, and I would pay back. Lo and behold, Aaron, didn't I get a letter back one morning? And I'll always remember my husband. We were, I think it, was, it must be Saturday morning. I wasn't working anyway for, for for some rare reason. And I saw this letter from me. We knew it was from the mortgage company. And I was so afraid that my hands were shaking. I said, the house is gone, the house is gone. So my husband had to open the letter. So eventually, anyway, opened the letter. I'll never forget what the letter said. The letter said, okay, thank you for your letter. If we will not take the house off you, if you continue to pay... £50 extra per month on top of your mortgage. And if you don't miss it, we will not take the house off you. Well, I jumped for joy. I swear to God, and I really broke my neck. I remember jumping for joy. And I said, at least I have the house anyway, because the house is very important to me. So I started paying it. And then we got more and more work. And see, my husband was the type of man, Aaron, he was, the, uh, he was a great man. When I say great, and I really mean this with the total respect, because, you know, we're 50 years married this year. And, uh, you know, it's unreal. I have a fabulous life today. 
he was the type of man that would come in and start playing with the children, putting on the music, playing the guitar to them. There wasn't even a bad bone in his body. There wasn't, there wasn't a crossword to him. And he was a very quiet man. And he would only drink at, at certain times. We'll say, for instance, he was a binge drinker. So he could go off six months without it. And the next thing, uh, he could go and he could stay on it for a couple of weeks until he got so sick that he couldn't drink for another couple of months. That's the way it was. So it wasn't that he was continually drinking. So that was grand. Lo and behold, I, I my poor mother was looking after the electricity. I was sending home the electricity money, the more work. I was making £1,500 a week, a year after starting the, the clinics. £1,500 a week. But I had my husband working with me. I had the children uh, before they went to school in the morning, they were helping out. And then we got police stations and we were cleaning three or four of those. And we were doing very well. Three years on, I had a lot of money paid back. Most of the, I had all the wares of my, my, my mortgage paid back because I sent home more than the £50 every month. I said, I'll try and get that down as much as I can. Then I contacted a credit union and I was paying them. And then I contacted the small suppliers and we, I was sending home the money to my mom to pay back all of those. So eventually, I, I had a beautiful sister in Tralee at the time. She was around the 37, 38, 9, and she got cancer. And I'll always remember, and this is where I'm coming to, where I came home to Ireland. I was four years over there at this stage, and I had pretty good shape in, in money-wise. What I didn't realize was Sean was really re reaching rock bottom with the drink, you know, because he could drink in the parks. And he got to a stage where he didn't really know where... I, I really felt that he would sign himself in and he wouldn't come out, and that sort of thing started happening. And I was still kept going you know and I said I can't give up there was no way I mean it wouldn't even enter my head that I, I could give up because I had made myself promise that I would never let anything happen to my kids I'd make sure I had money for them I made sure I did my best for them and that I wasn't going to let them down and and you know I married a man throughout my dreams I would loved him but I hated what he did with the drink that's the way it was so anyway my sister got sick and I remember coming home in April the year I actually came home and what made up my mind to come back so quick? I didn't intend coming back until uh, I'd said I spent five years over there and this was the fourth year. And when I saw my sister Joan and she died of cancer in the bed and she pulled us all into the bedroom by one and she said, look after yourself. She said, mind yourself. And she said, my advice to breeders come home. And in the meantime, I had a child number eight in England. I had a little girl in England. And uh, she said to me, mind yourself. And she said, come home. And she said, look, mind yourself. And I'll always remember those words. And I saw her struggling for Brett Aaron, you know, to try and stay alive. She did, she had three beautiful children. Her youngest was only 12 at the time. And I went back to England. You know, I kind of nearly said my goodbyes to her then. Lo and behold, three, two to three weeks after Joan died. And I remember while I was away back home to see Joan, the children had went up without food because the money that I left for the food for the children was drank. And I saw, oh my God, I said, this is, this can't, this is really, really bad. I realized then that we were in a really down, downward spiral where the drink was concerned. So I came back and I ended up, my husband had ended up going into hospital. Daughter at the time, who was 14, she told me, she said, Mom, she said, I really want to cut my wrists. She got Quincy. And I don't know, there were a lot of people who know what Quincy is. It's like you get a sore throat, you then swell and you don't get any notice and you could choke on them. And she ended up in hospital when I came back from, from England after seeing Joan. And she was very sick, so I had two in hospital. 
And I was absolutely in turmoil. And I couldn't come home for Joan's funeral because I knew if I came home for Joan's funeral, that same thing could happen again. And that what Maureen had said to me, I was a little bit worried about that. I said, my God, you know, I can't let this happen. So I didn't come home for Joan's funeral. So we had a flight booked anyway to come home in August, which we did every year. But the kids loved to come back to Ireland and the, the summer holidays, I'd come back for a couple of weeks. So we did. Came back in August and it was very sad because my poor mother was heartbroken because Joan had died and I was grieving. We were all grieving, but we weren't grieving the right way. I couldn't let myself grieve properly because I had too many other problems on my head to sort out. So finally, anyway, Aaron, we came home in August and the day we were going back in career, I'll never forget it as long as I lived. My husband started drinking again. He had been offered from maybe for me from the May until in August or May, June, July, maybe two or three months when he time I was off to see Joan until we came back on holidays he started drinking going back and when I got back to the sun Saturday evening so, and I wasn't feeling well at all I was very sick and I had asked people to look after the contracts while I was away and some of them understood because I said we're going on holidays and you have to do get somebody else and they were the clinics and they were the police stations because they were great money so that was grand came back anyway and on Monday morning, and I came back Saturday, and on Monday morning, I couldn't get out of bed. I was so sick. So I had to go to the doctor, which was around the corner. And I always remember she was a beautiful Pakistani doctor. And I'll never forget her words to me. She said to me, Brenda, she said, you're a very sick woman. She said, if you keep going the way you're going, she said, I'll give you six months to live. And there were her words. Because she said, number one, she knew of the history of my husband. And I told her about Joan. She knew about Joan dying. And she said, huh, you know, she said, there's only so much you, 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 you can take of this. So she said, you have double pneumonia in pleurisy. And she said, I want you to go home now. She says, go into bed. Don't get out of bed until Friday. She said, in the meantime, ring me. But she says, I'll cut up to see you on Friday. She said, and if you're not all right by Friday, she said, I have to admit you into hospital. So I said, fine. So I was determined for the first time in my life, I went into bed, Aaron, and I did not get out of bed Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I did feel a bit better on Friday morning. And I rang her. I said, there's no need to come up to me. I said, I said I'm said, i really, really good. You won't believe it, Aaron. I had, I had a van. I got on to the schools on the Friday afternoon in Tralee. And I said, I'm going home with my children right there and then because I knew what she said she meant it and if I stay there and things were getting worse that I would I would end up in a box as well so I said no I'm coming home so I booked the schools and I booked the ferry line or I, I don't know how I even got home Aaron. all I know is I, I filled a van with a big van at the time I was after paying a couple of pounds for it I said I hope it'll take me home gathered all my belongings and I said to my husband I said Sean I'm going home I said I can't take anymore and he says well oh, I'll stay here and we look after the business and my two eldest sons were walking over there as well so and they had girlfriends at the time and they were fine uh, so I said fine look I'm going home and that's it and I'll always remember coming home and we were so delighted I'll never forget coming around the county bounds after coming into wherever we I think we came into Wexford or Waterford whatever I, I can't even remember now but anyway so we were coming around the county bounds and I'll never forget I nearly got killed stone dead in the van there was a lorry coming towards me and I overtook I was the kids were all excited and but anyway thank God our fate was we were spared I got an awful shock and I'll never forget coming up the drive of our own house and the children elated and I was delighted I was so that was grand that was that was in September the kids were going back to school. I had booked them back to, to Callaghan School where they went before. 
at that stage, I had 5,000 pounds coming home and I had no heating. So I said, I'll put in the central heating. I put in the aisle. I said, we need the aisle for the kids and, and the house needs to be warm. And we painted it up and got maybe to, brought back a few beds and whatever I did. Anyway, I made it very comfortable. My husband was in England and that was grand. So I decided then I'll take a break for a couple of weeks because I had, as I said, I had the 5,000. And all I had left of the 5,000 at Christmas, Alan, by the, uh, Aaron, by the time I had the heating put in and the little bits and pieces done, I'd around maybe maybe 150 euro but I didn't mind it was money well spent and we were living off of it and so that was grand and eventually anyway my husband took a bout of drinking over again and the boys rang me and I said mom we can't cope with him and he's after admitting himself into hospital and that time he wouldn't admit himself out unless I went over which was I don't know my, what, what kind of Victorian it was at the time but I had to turn around and go back over for him and bring him home my brother came with me I brought him home and I stood him at the door and I said, Sean, your time is up. I said, it's like this. I said, look, I'm not fighting. I'm not arguing. I'm not doing nothing. But I said, unless you get help now, I said, it's over. Because I said, I can't take any more of this. I saw Joan. I said, Diane, I said, she wanted to stay alive. I said, she was taking her last breath. I said, you have the choice. I said, you're trying to kill yourself. I said, you're drinking bottles of vodka. I said, we'll, we'll be back to square one. And I said, I'm not putting up. So he went into his mother's and I said, look, get help. So he phoned Castle Island. It's a place here for for, alcoholic, for for alcoholics to go. So he booked himself in there in fairness to him. He really felt bad. And so he did book in there. That was 25 years ago. And then that was grand. Now, don't get me wrong. He had a few little slips after that. But once they get sober... And once they go to meetings, drink is never again the same to them. And I started going to Alanana at the same time, which would have been the, it would be support for the alcoholics, for to help people to cope with the alcoholic. So that was, I had been going to them anyway, but I started back again. That was grand. So I started then, I took, why I took on a job, below the bowling, there was a bowling alley here in Tralee. There was a restaurant there and the restaurant was closed. So I happened to say to the owner, look, I said, I'll clean the place here for you. I said, if you let me open the restaurant, I another brainwave. And I said, so he said, all right, okay. But he said, you have to pay your own electricity bill. I said, that's no problem. It was quite a little busy place. And I started doing lunches and everything. And basically what it did for me, Aaron, was it fed my children. And I didn't have to worry about them having food because I fed the kids there as well. We never made a lot of money out of it. But I, we were, because it was, apart from the electricity bill, I was cleaning the whole uh, bowling alley. And there was another little place upstairs. And I cleaned that as well. And that was our rent. So that was a good idea. In the meantime, that gentleman had a, he was a building contractor. And I said to him one night over a few drinks at Christmas time, again, the following year, to be the year after I come home, I said, I'm thinking of going back into the cleaning business full time. And I said, if you have any work, will you give it to me? And he said, of course I will. So that was grand. But he said, you have to register. So I did just start your own business course. And I said, I'll do it right this time. And I started ABC Cleaning. That was, um, we're 25 years this year, so that was 1995. So I started ABC cleaning, and it was, at the time we called it Albright Cleaning. Now, my husband was very, very good at the time, and he used to walk with my brother back to Dingle every morning for this gentleman. His name was Ned O'Shea. They're still builders. They're here today all the time, and they gave us a lot of work. So I left the bowling alley eventually then because I got so much work, and I still cleaned the bowling alley for him, and they kind of closed it down. They didn't bother after that. So anyway, uh, we started ABC Cleaning and the first three years were the hardest I've ever done in my life. And if anyone will tell me, Aaron, that you can start, and all I had in my pocket today was start with 74 pounds. Exactly. So I bought, I think I bought a second-hand Hoover, I bought a bucket of mop, 
I bought a brush and a few buckets, put them into the back of the car. I'll never forget it. That's all we had. Nothing else. And when we started working, word of mouth was how we, we couldn't even afford an ad. The family allowance that I got everyone paid for our public employer's liability because for the first time in my life, I said, you're going to do it right, Breda. You're not going to be ducking and diving and you're not going to be doing this. You're going to build a business and you're going to be proud of it. So we started, the first three years were torture. I remember going back to Dingle at one particular time when the bank told me they were pulling the rope from under my feet. They wouldn't give me nothing. They wouldn't even give me a 200, euro, a 200 pound overdraft. And there was a lovely girl working in there. Her name was Mary, and she was kind of a lovely girl. And there was no mobile phones or anything, no internet banking that time. So I was running in every Monday morning saying, oh, look, or in Friday, say, I have a check coming out the weekend. Do, please don't bounce anything in me. And the check will be here Monday morning. And that's the way I lived. Uh, I was really fretting uh, because, you know, the bit, I had to order stock and there was bits and pieces that you'd have to wait until you got paid from people. And this kind of thing was that now we were only doing houses and little bits of building work at the time. That was grand. There was a hotel owed me a nice bit of money. And I knew Mary had called me and she said to me, Breda, she says, I'm telling you now straight out. She said, I see you here coming here. She said, fretting. And she said, the sweat poor not worried about having money in. She said, the manager here is going to pull the plug in you on Monday morning. She said, I'm going to pre-warn you because she said, I like you so much. She said, and she said, look, why don't you stop before it gets too much? That was a Friday evening. And I said, oh my God, I was after putting three hard years down now at this stage. I went home and I was very disheartened and I thought about it Friday night. I didn't sleep that well. Then Saturday morning, I got up and I said, do you know something? I'm after laying the roots of a foundation of a business and they're just beginning to sprout and there's no way I'm giving up for any bank. So that was grand. What did I do? Got into my van, went back to Dingle, went back to the hotel that owed me money and I said, okay, look, I had been ringing. You would always get paid from the hotel but you had to wait for it. So the next thing I said, right, I went back to the hotel and this is a true story. It is in my book. And very little petrol. It was a little red van I had and uh, we called it Betsy. ABC cleaning was written on the outside of it. So that, that was my first van in Ireland. So the next thing I went back and the manager said, Jesus, he said, I told you, he said, I'd send you off to check when I had it. Well, I said, it's like this now. He was a lovely man. I said, it's like this. I said, do you think, I said, I come all the way back to Dingle. On a Sunday evening, I said, looking for money, I said, unless I really need it. I said, the bank pulled the plug. And I said, I'm going to be very honest with you. I said, that's why I'm here. Now, he said, I could sign the check this minute, he says, and he said, I would give it to you. But he said, I have to get it co-signed, he said, by the, the managing director. And he said, he's not here this evening. And I'll always remember, I had two pounds in my pocket, little petrol in the car, and I said, what am I going to do? So, But he says, I guarantee you, he said, go home. And he said, I guarantee you, he said, I'll have that check on the po in the post for you in the morning. I went out into the van, Aaron, and I said to myself, oh, my God, you this." Hold on a second now, Breda. Can't depend on that check to come. So what did I do? I slept in the van that night. I don't know how I phoned my husband. I, why I had a big, one of those old, big, old phones. There were a ton weight. I paid a pound for it. And I was able to ring him and I said, I'm not coming home. I said, look, I didn't say I won't come home. I said, I might be late tonight because I said, I'm waiting for the boss to come in. I said, the manager has a check signed, but I said he has to get a course and another signature. So I slept in the van that night, and I'll never forget it. And I remember it was back in Dingle, and I looked, I walked into, did a bit of walking, and lovely windows and the colored doors. And I saw, you know, so, and I said, oh my God. So I slept in the van, didn't sleep very well, woke the following morning, 
at six o'clock, it was a beautiful morning. And all I had was two pounds in my pocket. So I said, what will I get for two pounds for tea now? And so I went across to a shop and I got a cup of tea and a cheese sandwich. That was I could get that for two pounds. The lo and behold, nine o'clock, I couldn't wait. I suppose I had a hairbrush, I don't know what I had and made myself look all right anyway, washed my face inside in the, the shop, that's right, I remember that and comb my hair in there. That was grand. Went back into the hotel and the manager was inside the counter and he looked at me and said, Ah, Jesus, Brita. He said, You came back very early. I said, I did. I said, I told you I said I had I said I couldn't trust the post because uh, I told you I said the manager's pulling the plug me this one this genuinely happened I had to wait till 10 o'clock and he rang I said will you ring the boss I said and tell him please I said please I know him I said put me on the phone to him I said I know he signed the check so I stayed and I got the check for 1500 or seven, whatever it was I don't know I can't remember so it was a good bit of money anyway because we were after cleaning a load of holiday homes and part of a hotel for them as well that was grand got my check delighted with myself coming back and I ran out of petrol and I had a check in my hand and I could do nothing with it. But I only ran out of petrol very near Tralee. Got somebody to give me a lift I near a garage and said, will you run me back into Tralee? Went to the hook, went straight into the bank, handed in my check. I said, how much do I owe you? The whole that anyway came to something, we say, with a check that I had put in on Friday, I think it came to around £700. The £700 and that's back for the rest of the money. Went across the road to another bank, opened across the road in another bank and I left them. I said, do you know something? Because there's nobody going to tell me that I'm not going to trade. And that was it. End of story. You're not going to stop me. So that was the start of my journey. I got a good contract then, a very good contract. A gentleman, I heard, I overheard somebody one day, this was my first contract. And at the time it was called Aircom. Now it is Air. And I heard somebody saying, well, they tend the result for the Aircom. And I was my, I was earwigging. And uh, so I said, Jesus, I said, I, I, how's I didn't know that? I wouldn't have known it anyway. On Monday, I rang the Limerick, I'll always remember it, and I spoke to this gentleman. I said, I said, is the contract up for Tralee? Yeah, he said, it is. So I said, Jesus, I said, I'm, I'm after starting out there a couple of years ago, four years in business. I said, I would give anything to get it. So he said, I'm afraid. He said, Wednesday's the deadline. That was grand. So I said, no problem. So I said, if I went up, I said, and collected the application form, I said, and if I filled it in, I said, I'm sent it back to you. He said, there's no guarantee to be here for Wednesday. Got in my my van, went up to Limerick, filled in the application form, went in. He was a nice man. The next he came out, sat in the steps, filled up my form, and went back in, to, back in with, the, with it. So I was I made sure that it was in for Wednesday for 12 o'clock. It was in Monday evening. I got a phone call the following Monday. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And the gentleman said, Jesus, he said, you're the lady, he said, that came up, he said, and came in to me. He said, yeah. I said, yeah. He said, you're... The price you put in, he said, is very cheap. So I said, yeah. But I said, I know the building. I said, I know, I know the building that you're talking about. And all I was making out of it uh, was seven pounds a week. But I didn't mind because in sales, and this is for anybody in business, you throw a spread to catch a salmon. I could see the bigger picture. But I said, if I go in cheap and I prove myself. And he said, to, so he rang me on the Monday and he said, I wouldn't mind having a chat with you. But he says, I can't understand how you'll be able to do it. I said, trust me. I said, I will. And I said, and I'll do a great job. Lo and behold, I got a phone call on Wednesday or Thursday. Didn't I get the contract in Tralee of, of, of Aircom? And not alone that, for the next five years, I got Limerick. I got Aldi. They, 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 they had little substations. I got every one of them. And that put us on the road to uh, where success was built. And that's what I say about sales. Be nice to people. Don't be overpowering. 
go in a little bit cheaper. And then when you prove yourself, you can upskill yourself all the time. You can upsell all the time. And that's exactly what I did. And I would have got the whole count, the whole of Ireland that time, only that I didn't have the cash flow. You'd have to have a certain amount. But I got five great years out of it. From, from that contract, I built ABC Cleaning and we... We were going great, of course, until 2007, 2008. I took on a huge contract then with a retailer, a large retailer, and they gave me loads of work. I went up to Dublin to meet the, the, the one of the head bosses, and he wasn't a very, he was, he was a nice man. He says, how can I prove, he said, that you knew that, those jobs? Well, I said, give me one, I said, and I ended up with 22 of them by, by doing that. And so always ask. It's very important to ask, and don't be afraid. So I got it anyway, but that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back because it came 2007 to 2008, Aaron, and what happened was that particular giant of a company, they wouldn't pay you consistently every month. And if there was even as, as much as an eye not dotted, or the, 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 the dotted, they would find an excuse not to pay you. It meant that my cash flow went haywise. So I wasn't getting paid in time. That was grand. My doors, 2007, 2008, 2008, come Christmas, that was the time just the, the, uh, the recession started, and we got no soft landing. It just happened overnight. And by Christmas, I, I hadn't got the wages to pay my staff of that year. And I said, what am I going to do now? And the next thing, the banks said, pull the plug on me. They said, look, we're not paying. You know, I, w- I was involved in discount invoicing at the time as well, whereas you get 70% of the invoice upfront once you build them. But because I wasn't getting paid from my big retailer at the time, in time, there was surcharges, there was charges and charges upon charges goes on, going on day by day. So I got into massive trouble. That was grand anyway. And the next thing, the revenue pulled the plug on me. And this was Christmas. For some unknown reason, there was a God there because the wages actually went through. By the time it went up to Dublin, that time we had to send them to Dublin. The miscommunication between Tralee and Dublin, when we put the wages through, I went home, covered my head and said, what's going to happen now? You're not going back to work. The wages won't go through. And lo and behold, the wages go through. I didn't give a care. I was so delighted. I said, thank God. God, you're there. There's definitely a universe there and, and a God there. The wages went through and there wasn't even half the money in the bank. That was grand anyway. I knew then I was gone. That was it. End of story. ABC was gone. I wouldn't be coming back after Christmas. And what am I going to do now? That was grand anyway. I, I confided in a friend of mine and I said to her, I won't be opening after Christmas. And I had warned a couple of close staff. I had to said, please, lads, don't open your mouth. Don't let anybody know that we're in this situation. I said, look, with a couple of days after Christmas, I tried to make the best of it here for my children, my own children at home. But I knew that by the 7th of January, we weren't going back to work. That was grand. I met a friend of mine and she said, look, let me have a chat with somebody. And she did. And that gentleman came to me and his name was Peter McDermott. I'm not afraid to say his name. He's still in business today. He's a great, lovely gentleman. He knew somebody that could invest in my company. And he asked him, would he do it? And I met him and he bailed me out for 175000 that's how much I was in. I was 250,000 deficit in debt, but he gave 175 to pay off the revenue and to pay off the bank and to bring down the overdraft at the time, which was 175,000. But wait, Peter then, the man that got the money, he stepped in with me then and he said, I'll make all the hard choices for you because I said, I'm most, mostly family working. And he said, 
you have to take a pay cut as well. And I started to get what I take. I said, I have no is better than no look. The investors came in anyway. The next thing, what happened, Aaron, was that was grand. I had no control then. They had, it was, they had 51% and I had 49 But the way I looked at it, I said, look, a half a loaf is better than no loaf. I'm still in business. I'll be able to trade. And that's exactly what happened with the winter solicitors and everything. And uh, if anything went wrong, that they would take the business over from me. That was grand. January 2009. And the next thing anyway, lo and behold, the contracts then started going down and down and down. And that particular giant retailer started putting out the tender for auction to come down to the lowest price. And I knew we were gone at that stage. I said, there's no way we can compete because we won't make money. We did our figures and we said we'd come down to a certain amount to make long story short. The next thing, they came back then to all of kind of a, not a hoax, a way of getting you down to bring down the lowest price with the recession. We eventually, in July of that year, we got a couple, we, we held on to about maybe five or six. I said, we'll only do the local ones because it's not paying me to go up the country. And by July, we wrote them a letter saying that it wasn't viable, it wasn't sustainable, and that we would give them a month's notice. We would do a new business model plan. And that's exactly what we did. The investor, the investor money wasn't happy. Now, in the meantime, he was out to get back 56000 because when Peter stepped in, he made sure that the, when the back was paid, that we, we were giving him back the 50000 because that was the original, that 50000 would be paid back within a certain length of time. And we had it paid back by July. And then we, we said, bring the company down a small bit, cut back completely, and we'll work from there. But the investor wasn't happy, and he put the gun to my head, and he said, I want all my money back, which was 108000 that we owed at that particular time. I said, okay, I was I nearly lost my life. So I said, how are we going to pay that back? So Peter said, come on, he says, we'll do our figures. So we had to cut back again, cut back, cut back, cut back, cut back. We, came. we went from 365 staff down to 90 staff. Anyway, he had a meeting with me and I had to pay back 3,000 a month back to the investor until it was all paid back. If you're good at calculation, 3,000 divided by 108 is three years without missing a month. And if I miss one month, was written in the, in the solicitor's office that he would take the, the company over. By hook or by crook, that treat house had to be paid back every month. So I was back to the bread line again. I was taking no wages. That was grand. This is a fact. The other gentleman put 25000 of his own money into it at the time to keep it going because we were trying to pay back all that money. That was grand. I swear to God, three years to the day, there was one month that we were. I could only pay 2000 but I rang him in advance and I said, look, it's like this, I said. Now, this is a huge businessman in Ireland, and it should never be disclosed because that was in the agreement. So I rang him and I said, look, I said, I'm so sorry, but I said, I've only 2000 Well, he said, I, when the day he said that I said to you, pay back 3000 he said, I thought you'd never make it. And he said, fair play to you, you did. The 2000 is fine this month. So I was supposed to finish in, in February uh, the 3000 but this was March, and I owed 4500 So I rang him up again, and I said, I'll give you half the money. And I said, by April, I said, I'll finish with you. I said, is that okay with you? And he said, yes, no problem. So I finished that. I gave back 108000 with no money hardly coming in in three years. I started paying back the other investor, which put no... He was the man that helped me. Uh, no pressure whatsoever. So I said, I can't, I said, I'll continue now and pay back the 25000 and I'm not joking you, Aaron, that was exactly five years ago. If we went into the company's office, there was four investors in the company, Breed and Sean Hurley, the investor, 
he gave a different name. They, they were all investors. They, they, sorry, they were shareholders. It took me three years. Only last year we got back on shareholding. I owned the, the, the company 100% and I bought a half a bottle of good uh, champagne because that's all I could afford today. I pay back everybody. And from that day on, I suppose the enthusiasm, the drive I had, the resilience, the hard work paid off. And there is nothing impossible. And I really mean that. I wrote a book called Survive and Thrive based on my life experience in, in business. And I had a wonderful night. And we, there was about 380 people turned up on the night and I had written video. I was very proud. And I won the Lifetime Achievement Award for Women in Business again after that. So, you know, never give up is my attitude. And I keep saying it to everybody. And now we're in a dilemma at the moment. Every The whole world is in a dilemma. We're down to about 40 staff. We had 140. I see it as a positive and I really mean that because if I had to look at it and say, oh, Jesus, we're going to go back to what we were. No, we're in a different position today because we, we, were, we steadied the ship. We put away money for a rainy day into a second account for fear something would happen. And we're very blessed with three years, a little bit, a small bit put away every month. When we go back and from, for this, we'll go for anybody, Aaron that we'll go back to business and that her thinking going back to business. It's nice to make sure that you, you keep something at least because when we go back and we'll never go, we won't go back to full capacity for a long time because, you know, I'm a pure optimist and I, and I can see it building up. But it's going to take hard work again now because we're not the only ones in trouble. Everyone is in trouble. And when we go back to some normality, when the schools and the colleges and everything else, then we'll open up again because we do the small airport here. We do loads of stuff. We do, we have very good contracts and they're very good. But a lot of them won't go back into business again. We know that. So I would be saying that we'd be probably down to about 70% of our contracts. If this happened me, 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 even 10 years ago, I couldn't afford to put away that money. But I know now that when we will go back, we have to wait for two months to get paid from our client. At least we can carry the business for two months with the cash flow behind us. I'm not too worried about it. I, of course we are concerned. But if I had to see, keep thinking and saying, my God, what's going to happen now? We're gone again. No, just think. So always look at the glass half full. Be positive because if you've got a positive mind and if you really want to continue or anybody, and I'm, I'm, I'll be 70 years in May, and I'm more content now in my life that I've done a fairly good job you know, I did make a load of mistakes. I bought properties. I didn't even go into that. And I ended up with two out of maybe seven. I got rid of the rest of them so that I wouldn't have into 2008 when I was in trouble. I did make money out of them. They were sold at a loss because it's like I had to get rid of them because I couldn't afford them. I had to sell them at a loss. So basically, that's my story up until today. And I'm looking forward to the future. What I love now, Aaron, nothing more. And, and I really, really mean this. I'm mentoring at the moment and I'm learning online because I'm going to do, I love mentoring only one-to-one. And I love to do the odd Zoom call. And I run a little Facebook live, maybe a couple of days a week on positivity, keeping people's spirits up. And for anyone that's in business, stick it out. It won't happen overnight. And if you think it will, it will not. It takes three years to, to build up your name. And then you can start with just when you're about to give up and you say, to yourself, this is not working. Then it's working. You've turned the corner when you say that. But some people just give up and they don't even think. And they just say, 
this is not working, but that's when it will work. And for people that are in this awful dilemma that we're in today, that we'll, we have never seen, we have never seen the likes of this before. We thought 2008 was bad, you know, but this is totally different. But the difference this time is we're all in it together. The government are bailing out the, the employers this time, which is a godsend because they're paying 85% of the wages to keep the people on so that when we go back to work, that there'll be jobs there for them. So at least we have that. I'm very positive. My daughter runs the company today. Uh, she owns most of the company. I have a little bit, small bit there. I keep my just my head in there just to see what's going on. I look at the business now. I look outside of it. I look into it now rather than work in it. I don't work in it anymore. But I make sure for anybody that's in business, watch the bottom line all the time. Make sure that there's cash flow because without the cash flow, you haven't got a business. And we will get out of this. We will get over it. And we will come back again. And for anyone out there, all I would love to say is that I am here at the other end of the phone. I've gone through businesses. I've dissected them. I've never given up. And I can always look outside the box and say, you know, I do mentor a lot of people at the moment. And I love what I do. And with the life experience, the knowledge, the determination, the work ethic, the hard work that goes into it, if you stick at it long enough, it pays off. Never give up. Your story has gone from zero to success and, and thriving. What makes you so positive or how do you get into that positive state all the time? That's a very good question, Aaron. I suppose all my life, you know, when you're told so many times when you're young, you know, you try to prove yourself all the time. If you want to be outstanding, you're trying to do something that nobody else would do. Even as a child, I always went the extra mile for people. I would go to the water for well. I would go to the shop for the neighbours. I would walk into town. I often had to walk in three or four miles a day. And I always did that. And even when I was working for people, and, you know, I always had this attitude, do it right or don't do it at all. And I suppose I built up that positivity in myself because there is no other way, Aaron. Okay, I could be, it's either sink or swim. You know, you're either positive. I, I'm not a martyr, you know. I, I have a pair of hands. I'm in fairly good health. And I always had that mindset that I would make it. And I'm always positive, even in, the, in, in my darkest days. And I have a son very sick at the moment, Aaron. He's only 44. He has cancer. His stomach was removed. And then he now is he's, he's on chemo. And he's only 44. You know, sometimes... I pray that he'll be okay. And if there was anything in my life that I worry about, apart from that, I don't worry. Worry gets you nowhere. Why worry? Because if you worry, it won't solve the problem. You know, and I found I wasn't as good always, Aaron, as I'm now, looking at life in a different light. And I suppose what I have now is I love to share what I have that took me a long time, up until about 2011, Aaron. I always kept a brave face. And even if things were dire, I would get up, dress up and show. And I'd always have a positive smile on my face because if you meet somebody and have a smile on your face, at least you're giving out that good vibe. Who wants to hear somebody moan and groan? I keep away from negative people now and I don't associate myself with them. I stick with the winners. And I guarantee you, that if you believe in the universe, great things will happen. If I believe or anybody believe that, you know, I know that ABC will be okay. Why? Because I'm positive. 
If I said, oh, Jesus, it's all gone out, it would be gone. So, Jesus, why stay stay that when I know it will be okay? And, you know, it's like something you put the cloud in the sky and it's going to happen. I see the light at the end of the tunnel. I see the rainbow. I see the crock of gold. And, you know, and don't get me wrong, Alan, I haven't got money. But I have, what I have, what I have is, you know, I look after my family. The business is going good. We don't blag out the company. And I have a great outlook in life. I always had, I suppose, even when I was down, I never gave up. As you can see, the things I did for to try and make things happen. And it took me a long time, but by gosh, I did make it happen. Brida, if there was one piece of advice that you could give to someone that you meet on the street for the first time, what would it be? What I would say to a person is, first of all, they, the very first thing I would say to them, number one, the most important thing, you're making a commitment when you're starting a business. It's not that you're going in from nine to five. That's not going to happen. You have to give more than 100%. You have to give the client something. You have to go way beyond. And I remember somebody saying to me one time, what's your USB? And I didn't even know what the word USB means. What's your unique selling point? Because no matter what we do in life, it's to do with sales. And I would say to the person, the person, actually, I have people at the moment that I am mentoring. And I have one particular woman. She's starting a business. Is it the wrong time? The best time to start the business is in a recession. The best time to start the business, don't think about it. Just make sure that you do it. Because if you if you, you say, oh, I'll start that next week, it's not going to happen. You have to start it now. Do it now and don't think about it. And I suppose what I would say to people starting out, if they had to borrow money, make sure that they just they borrow enough because you can't go back to the well twice. I never borrowed money because we didn't get it, okay? I wouldn't have been given the money with my record. But for anybody that can win with a clean slate, they borrow enough. Make sure you get that tiny bit extra just in case you cannot, it, once it's there, it's like us with the, the rainy day fund. Once you have it there and you don't have to touch it and don't touch it unless you have to. Make, do, make the sacrifices in the start. You'll have to wait for that nice car. You'll have to wait for that nice house. You'll have to wait for that beautiful pond. You'll have to wait for those beautiful holidays all in good time. Get the business up and running. And it's like an airplane taking off from the ground if you were listening to Brian Tracy last night. You have to keep going and keep going up and up until you come to an altitude that is going very straight. Never take your business for granted. Never. Don't ever get complacent, unless alone that you know you have money, that you know that if anything went wrong tomorrow morning, you have enough for the rest of your life. Then you can become complacent. That doesn't happen overnight. That, that's a lifetime. I suppose the reason I'm happy at the moment is, you know, I have my eight children. They're all around me. I help them out as much as I can. I would be probably maybe very rich if I, you know, I did make bad decisions. Of course I did. Am I worried about them? No. No, 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 not at all. They were they were learning curves. I wouldn't do make the I still take risks. And for the person that I would that would be starting business, you would put in long hours. There'll be a lot of stress for a while. But keep at it. Don't give up. Whatever you do, give it a hundred percent and make sure that the customer and I know it's an old saying the customer is always right, but trust me, they are. And always make sure that you go to the person before they come to you with a complaint. You go to them and ask them, is everything okay? Can I do anything for you?
and always offer something, a tiny little extra. Like if there's only to clean a mat, I'd say, I'll get one of the boys now to do that for you this evening. And that means the world to people. They just offer them something small and they love that. And people love to communicate. Don't ever stay away from them if the thing is going bad. If something happens, face up to it, put the hand up and, and solve it. But we always go to the customer before the customer comes to us. If you could give advice to your younger self, what would it be? That is very interesting because I was here the night before last and I had a chat with a lady that came on with me. I've no problem mentioning her name. Her name is Denise Brannick. And we had a chat and she brought me back. I was saying, you know, I suppose I reached the pinnacle of my career. I said, I was missing one piece of the jigsaw and I got that the night I won the Lifetime Achievement Award for Women in Business. And I said, of all the hard work I put into my life, I finally felt the piece of the jigsaw that night and she turned around to me and she says to me Rita she said if you you, what would you say to yourself what's block you know have you a block and I said yes I have and she brought me back to when I was five years of age and I didn't even mention that because you know it's it's a whole story itself and she said what happened I said I was abandoned because I, I went into a sanatorium and I was taken from my mother and what would you say to that reader today? Now, and that's a very good question. She said the same thing to me. And she made me think about it. And she said, Look, what would you say to Breda? I would say one thing to myself. I fell in and out of love with Breda so many times through my life. Now that I've got her at five years, I hug her and cuddle her and say, would I do the same again? I probably, I certainly would. I wouldn't change my life for anything, but I would definitely have made probably, of course, better decisions. But I wouldn't change my, I, I'd still marry the man I married. I'd still have my children. I probably would make better business decisions. But having said that, when I was 14 years of age, so I'd write a book, I said I'd have my own house, I'd start a business. And you know, I achieved all of those in life. And I do love myself today. And that's another thing I would say to everybody out there. You can't give out what you haven't got yourself. You can't spread it. No, we can, we, we can put on a false face and go. We can say, great, you know, I'm in great form today, which we are. And I am. And I'm genuine because everybody knows that anyway. I'm so positive. But it's only when you, when you cover back to basics and you think of where you came from. And but I'm very proud of myself. I would say, well done. And before I wouldn't say that about myself. I'm, I'm very proud of who I am and what I stand for. And I didn't, you know, I didn't like our people in life. I looked after my family. That's me in a nutshell. But going back to Breda, yeah, I probably love myself a little bit more throughout the years rather than wait until later years because I might have been more kinder to my kids because in struggles and strifes, in a family and you're trying to run businesses, it's not easy. I would have been a lot more calmer. Frida, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they uh, find you? We actually have two websites. But the, the, the one that's at, at the moment, that I suppose, if, the first one is, my, of course, my company, ABC Cleaning. It's www.abccleaning.ie. My own website at the moment is www.bridahurley.com. And we spelled with two E's. I have a website myself. And I... There you can book your mentoring. I also have a Facebook page, uh, a business Facebook page. I'm learning at the moment. I won't tell a lie. I'm on Instagram. 
and I'm also doing a bit of LinkedIn a little bit. I'm just I'm actually getting serious, you know, serious yes. in 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 yeah. the I have I have a call book with him for the end of the week just to, to give me some 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 tips to be able to do some stuff like that. I love to teach online. I want to teach. Uh, I it, it's all mentoring. Mentoring is my my love. And I, you know, I found that out when I spoke to Denise the other night. What you love, I love mentoring. I love helping people. And you, I, as I said, I can be got on Facebook. I also do a live every Monday night from Johnny's Cottage. That's where I live at the moment. And we do a Facebook live. I used to with my two sisters with the social distancing. We come into the kitchen here. We do a bit of cooking, have a bit of crack, have a bit of banter. And I have that Facebook page live as well. That's only a Facebook page every Monday night, live stream from half to seven to eight o'clock. That's gone on for 20 months and we have a load of followers on that. And which definitely www.bridahurley.com is my website from my own personal page. And of course, I always, I the Facebook, Brida Hurley, Brida Hurley again is, is my page. On Monday morning, I'm starting a new page, a Facebook page. It's called Survive and Thrive. And it's especially now for people that are in business, that they're stuck in crossroads, people that are thinking of starting a business. And I'm going to do one day a week, and I'm going to do a Zoom call then of a Thursday with those people. And anybody that want to book a call with on Zoom, because at the moment, and that's the way forward are anyway, because uh, for a long time, I think we'll, I think it's, I think the whole dynamics of business has changed. There'll be an awful lot done online now. There'll be a lot more now than there was ever done. And people are just getting used to going on Zoom calls and on social media. If you're present on social media all the time, you certainly will build up a following. And I notice myself there, people do contact me and they do contact me contact me privately when I go on Facebook. Or as I said, I'm only breaking into Zoom myself at the moment. But definitely, I have um, I have my phone number and everything. My website is 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 up as well. Anyway, I, I can be contacted. BridaHartley.com is my website. Fantastic, Brida. It's been a pleasure and an honour to hear your story and who you are and what you are. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Aaron. It was a pleasure, and uh, thank you very very much. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.